You're listening to the Christian Humanist Radio Network, christianhumanist.org. At least as far back as Abraham, being faithful in this world of ours has meant confessing a certain way while one's neighbors confessed otherwise. Jews and Christians and Muslims therefore stand to benefit not only from knowing the book that each community hears read in worship, but also our neighbors' books. And when scholars edit and publish editions of those texts to assist study, there's always a gift not only within synagogue or church or mosque, but also among neighbors. One such good gift is Harper's 2015 Study Quran, a volume unapologetically for Muslims and also generously for the rest of us. Christian Humanist Profiles is is glad to welcome Professor John Er Dali, one of the Study Quran's general editors, to talk about that volume. Professor Dali, thank you for coming on the show. It's a pleasure to be here. Many of our listeners are going to be familiar with the HarperCollins Study Bible, which has become one of the standard volumes for university and seminary biblical studies classes. What makes this uh, this volume something that stands to occupy the same place in religious studies departments? Um, there's really no uh, equivalent yet for the study of Quran. There have been some works that were written in English, uh, uh, translations of the Quran with accompanying notes, which were essentially for a Muslim audience uh, with a view to addressing the questions posed by modernity and other types of problems. The translation and commentary of Abdullah Yusuf Ali, before him of Muhammad Ali, uh, more recently in 1980, that of Muhammad Assad. Uh, but these didn't have the same intention or the same scope uh, as the work which we put together, which was not only to address uh, a Muslim audience, both scholarly and non-scholarly, but also a more general audience. But since all of us are by training, uh, at least partially, uh, part of our training includes very substantially uh, a Western academic background. We also wanted to create a book that would be usable and useful for scholars, for researchers. Um, and what we tried to set out to do was to be able to answer the question, what have Muslims believed the Quran has said? I mean, how have they put it into practice? Uh, how have they interpreted it? How has it been received in various um, areas uh, and by various groups? And this is something that simply didn't exist uh, in English before. And we're hoping that it can be a, a kind of a a quick reference for people who want to be able to check what a specific verse or a specific concept means in the Quran, but also to be a resource for in-depth study uh, if somebody wants to pursue a topic um, at at length um, and with a a degree of complexity and subtlety, which we think they would be able to do with this book. All right, very good. Well, in the volume's general introduction, we readers are reminded that any holy text potentially reaches an array of audiences. And I'm going to quote here because I I like this sentence. Quote, the focus of the study Quran is on the Quran's reception and interpretation within the Muslim intellectual and spiritual tradition. Although this does not mean that Muslims are the only intended audience, since the work is meant to be of use to various scholars, teachers, students, and general readers, close quote. Now, that introductory essay focuses a great deal more attention on that relationship between the book itself and, you know, the audience of the faithful and the audience of those wanting to learn about the faith. 
take a moment here to tell our listeners about the Quran's role in Islamic piety specifically. Well, there's really no such thing as Islamic without the Quran. The Quran is at the root and at the heart of everything that uh, a Muslim believes, at everything a Muslim does, and it's the, at the heart of their spiritual life. And so the, the, the Quran is the first source of Islamic theology. It's where Muslims get their foundational, you might say, information about what is God like, what will happen when we die, how should we live, uh, what, uh, where did we come from? Uh, it also serves as the foundation for Islamic law, meaning what kind of society should we have, and also how should we worship, which is an aspect of Islam, uh, which is a dimension of Islamic law. Uh, and it's also uh, the foundation for Islamic science, uh, Islamic art. It provides uh, an, a, a kind of uh, comprehensive cosmology, a way of looking at the world, a way of thinking about beauty. Uh, and it also provides the the very substance, you might say, of the spiritual life, right? Not only what the spiritual life is, not only describing the content of the spiritual life, but providing the very means by which Muslims can traverse the spiritual path. And so the Quran has a very important ritual function. It's not only a book that Muslims read, it's a book that Muslims recite. Uh, it's, a, it's a book that they feel enters into their hearts uh, and which is used to use Christian language liturgically, that is to say the recitation of the Quran and the five daily prayers and also outside of the five daily prayers is a very important form of prayer. It's a very important way of connecting with the very word of God uh, and internalizing as a kind of sacrament the presence of God. Mm -hmm. Very good. Well, one of the things that I learned, again, from the volume's front matter uh, is that the history of the translation of the Quran is not by any means uniform. Uh, it gets translated into Latin as early as the 11th century for some very specific and and not entirely charitable motives. Uh, but then, when it comes to translating it into Chinese, it doesn't happen until very, very late in history. Uh, what kinds of differences motivate some regions and some peoples and some language groups to produce translations sooner than others? And what reasons did those late translators have for translating late? You know, it's not an easy question to answer uh, without really getting into some of the history uh, and and somewhat it's a somewhat contingent answer in the sense that it's it's not always easy to tell what historical situations and conditions led to certain translations being made in some places and not in others. So I think many Muslims would be surprised, for example, uh, that the second language into which the Quran was translated was Gujarati and not, let's say, Turkish or uh, Urdu or something like that. Mm -hmm. uh, because, you know, it's not a very big, uh, linguistically speaking, a, a big group. Persian was the first language into which the Quran was translated. That's not a surprise. After all, Persian is the second major language of Islam. Mm -hmm. uh, it, I think one thing that we have to keep in mind is the way in which the Arabic of the Quran is part of Islamic life uh, and Islamic intellectual life. For, for almost, and really up until this day, the lingua franca, the, the, the language of Islamic scholarship and of Islamic piety is Arabic. Uh, it began as Arabic in, if you were a Persian scholar, if you were a Turkish scholar, uh, if you were in the subcontinent and you were a scholar of Islam, you had a mastery of Arabic. Uh, and so the Quran in the Arabic was never far from people. Uh, there would always be scholars who would have a kind of a, a command and an acquaintance with the Arabic of the Quran. And it wouldn't have been a 
in, in many cases, there wouldn't have been felt a need, per se, to translate it into the local uh, language uh, because it was already a part of spiritual life. And one thing here to understand that's very important is that uh, for Muslims, the Qur'an is not only a set of meanings, and I alluded to this earlier, the very form of the Qur'an is considered to be sacred. I'll give you an example. My own mother loves to just sit and listen to the Qur'an being recited. I mean, she could, I mean, she listens to it the way, you know, let's say a, a, a Westerner would listen, some people like to listen to opera or classical music. Mm -hmm. She can just sit and listen to it and absorb it for hours, even though she doesn't understand Arabic. She can't. Un she doesn't know what the Qur'an is. She can read the, the Arabic letters for the purposes of prayer, but she can't understand what it is. And yet, she derives a tremendous blessing from it. She really experiences what Christians would call a kind of a grace from it. And this is a very universal experience for Muslims. So the fact that it wasn't translated doesn't mean that it was somehow a remote or inaccessible text. All Muslims throughout history have always felt an incredible intimacy with the Qur'an even in the absence of a translation. And the translation of the Qur'an would have been in the form of the scholars who taught them their beliefs, who taught them how to live. The translation could have taken the form of the very Islamic architecture and Islamic art and the forms around them. That is to say, it could be translated not only linguistically, but also into forms of life by which Muslims were able to then live Quranically, you might say. And then you have just the contingent uh, historical conditions of whether or not people would want to translate it into a local uh, language. In the case of Chinese, it happened quite late. Uh, in the case of Persian, it happened quite early. And, and there was a kind of a broad spectrum, but it's very hard to give a general rule as to why it would have happened in one place and the other. But I think if we think about the general relationship that a Muslim has with the Quran, it could shed some light on that question. Mm -hmm. And I'm going to ask you about a three-hour question and, and request a two-minute answer. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, is there a uh, homiletic tradition in Islam that involves, you know, sort of on-the-spot translation? Or how does, I, I, I guess, how do uh, the concepts of the Quran come to people who do not read or hear Arabic? Uh, it would essentially, it would take many forms. Uh, mm -hmm. Of course, you have the Friday Sermon, which is a, which is a very important uh, a, a kind of congregational form uh, of, of worship where, you know, that's kind of the equivalent of the Saturday uh, for, for Jews and Sunday for Christians where Muslims gather at the mosque and they hear the sermon. Uh, but you would also hear it translated through poetry. Uh, I'll give you an example. Rumi, uh, mm -hmm. this 13th century uh, poet, Persian poet, uh, who's the, the best-selling poet in the English language actually now in the United States, uh, people have called his famous Mesnevi, it's a, 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 a epic poem of rhyming couplets, the Quran in Persian. It's mm. a kind of running Quran commentary in a sense, which is to say that the poetry, the song even, uh, you know, uh, even folk songs, uh, po poetry especially, uh, and other forms of art and of spirituality would themselves be so formed by the Quran, they would be so... Um, in, in, enriched and infused with the Quranic message that the Quran would, in a sense, even for someone who didn't speak Arabic, they would have an incredible command of what was inside the Quran by virtue of being literate even in their own languages because of the, of the scholarship, of the art, of the literature of their own language, which was influenced by the Quran. So, for example, Persian, 
um, uh, is a very Quranized, you might say, language. A lot of its vocabulary comes from the Quran. A lot of its idioms come from the Quran. It's something like the. It's something like modern English in relation to the King James. Uh, I think a lot of people don't realize just how many idioms from the Bible are a part of modern English, and they don't even realize that that's what it is, and that they're able to understand the Bible when they read it, not because the Bible is universal in that sense, but because they already have absorbed the idioms, you might say, by osmosis. And mm -hmm. so that's one way in which it gets translated. And on top of that, of course, scholars who are, who are competent to do so can translate the meaning of the Quran, as you say, on the spot. Mm -hmm. and, in, and in the modern context, it's very typical for people to just choose one of the other translations and refer to that. Okay, very good. Well, this volume is decidedly a collaborative effort. I get that sense on every page of the volume. Uh, several translators were involved in the overall process. In broad terms, describe for our listeners the sort of philosophies of language and translations that guided this particular translation of the Quran. Well, it's 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 a funny story because we didn't actually set out to create a new translation when this project was first commissioned. Uh, when Harper first approached Dr. Nasser for, uh, to do the study Quran, the idea was to do something very much like the study Bibles, which was to take an existing translation and then add some notes to it and an introductory text. Mm -hmm. But what we quickly realized was that in order to produce a study text, we could not use any of the existing translations, not because the existing translations weren't good. Some of them aren't good, but many of them are quite good. But because there were questions of consistency of accuracy uh, and of a kind of, uh, you might say, literalness that we thought we needed to have in order to properly explain the text. For example, one of the characteristics of the Quran is a kind of echoing of various ideas, words, divine names, concepts, stories, which appear in varying forms and in, with slight uh, changes from you know one instance to the next throughout the text, and it's very important for the English reader to be able to know that if a, that if um, a, for example a divine name appears on one page, it'll be translated the same way somewhere else. That if a certain phrase which is meaningful appears throughout the Quran, that it be translated in the in the exact same way and using a similar kind of style. So that was something that we were very sensitive to. Uh, we were also sensitive to using the full capacity of the English language to be able to convey the grandeur of the Arabic. Uh, and so we didn't want to be quote unquote modern or contemporary or fashionable in our use of English. We really wanted to use a kind of, to the degree possible of course, a kind of timeless English uh, that wouldn't be out of fashion in 20 or 30 years. Uh, you know, it's still the case, uh, my colleague Joseph always li uh, likes to bring this up, it's still the case that the most used and quoted version of the Bible is the King James. Mm -hmm. It's not one of the more uh, recent versions. I think there's a reason for that. I think it has a lot to do with the beauty and the grandeur of the language. And so we wanted to be consistent. We wanted to be correct. Uh, and we also wanted to the degree possible to have something uh, be beautiful. And so we used the full extent of the English language. Some people have criticized us uh, and have objected to, let's say, the use of the thee and the thou uh, in in the translation, but we, I mean, we believe that this is still part of English. Uh, it is has somewhat archaic feel for some people, but it's still there. It's still very comprehensible, and it does convey some something of the grandeur of the original Arabic. The Quran is not like a modern Arabic newspaper. 
it right. it has a very <laughs> it it is a it is a it is even in the arabic it is a demanding text it it is it is in some places dense elusive elliptical uh some it sometimes very pithy uh it sometimes really challenges uh your the conventional idea of grammar and prosody even in the arabic and so it's quite correct for the english to also make a demand on the reader and what we've tried to do is to maintain that mysterious elliptical quality in some places of the quran maintain some of the grandeur and hopefully the readers will put in the work you might say in those cases where it is a little bit demanding uh to 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 appreciate the the text that's not to say that it's a difficult text to read but there are places where it, where it doesn't exactly flow the way let's say you might read a modern novel it does require someone to pause and to take deliberate steps to read but our, that was our overall approach we 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 wanted to maintain correctness consistency maintain a certain degree of eloquence uh and make sure that we translated it so that it would reflect the meanings of the 7th century and not the later tradition interpreting what they thought that the text ought to mean that was also a very important guiding principle for us oh very good very good i want to zoom in a little bit on one particular translation choice that jumped out to me even though i'm not even remotely a quranic scholar and that's that you chose in this translation to translate the arabic allah into the english word god rather than transliterating it as i've seen in other english translations as editors how much conversation went into that decision or was it pretty natural since you i mean you say in your front matter that you don't set out to follow other english translations uh i would say that we i don't remember really talking much about that because for us it was a rather obvious choice okay. um allah, allah in arabic is the equivalent of god in english uh dios mm -hmm. in and spanish dieu in french god mm -hmm. in german and so forth and so on if you walk into a an arab christian church let's say in egypt or in lebanon mm -hmm. uh they use the word allah and mm -hmm. so there's really no you might say strong justification in my view and in our view for insisting on using the word allah in a translation of this kind there are different reasons why people would make that choice so on the muslim side you do have those muslims who argue that the english word god has been so infused and laden with trinitarian incarnationist doctrines in the western tradition that they think that that somehow makes it unfit to convey the the idea of god in the muslim context and so it's better to stick with the name allah so as not to confuse the the monothe what they see as being the rigidly monotheistic view of god of this of in islam with the trinitarian incarnationist view in christianity but of course that doesn't address the fact that jews have a very similar conception of god uh and that's also part of the of the history of the term never mind the fact that linguistically if you look at the etymology of the word god it has a very similar history to the etymology of the word allah in arabic Uh mm -hmm. so that's on the muslim side on the you might say in some cases there i say the anti-muslim side there is a kind of way in which the word allah the use of the word allah in speech is is somehow weaponized as to imply a kind of otherness difference uh, and to dehumanize the other side there was an instance i always i always use this example in class um uh, uh, sarah palin speaking of the syrian civil war said 
you know, basically, you know, let them, you know, let them kill each other and then let Allah sort them out. And it's mm -hmm. very interesting, the use of the word Allah there. It's mm -hmm. number one, it's very interesting because that phrasing, you know, let God sort them out actually comes from a 12th century uh, Christian on Christian massacre in France where uh, a bishop said, well, kill them all and God will know his own. And that eventually became this idea of kill them all, let God sort them out. Mm -hmm. But if she had said, let God sort them out, then it would have sounded as horrifying as it actually is. But yeah. if, since you <laughs> use the word Allah, there was a kind of a distancing. It's as though Muslims worship this strange being that doesn't really exist and it's sort of made up and we don't it's not really the same thing that we worship and mm -hmm. so in that sense it can also be used cynically other westerners use the word allah out of courtesy they believe that it's correct and they and they want to be polite and not presumptuous and that's a positive intention uh, and then there's also one other reason why sometimes muslims use the word allah and that's because it has a somewhat different sense for them as being the personal name of God as opposed to a generic word for God. In English, you have this strange equivocality around the word God. It's capital G, small g. You can mm -hmm. talk about a God. You can talk about God as a personal name. But in Arabic, Allah is the personal name of God. It's like saying Jehovah in English. Uh, it, you, you don't say a Jehovah. You just say Jehovah. Uh, right. And so in that sense, there's also that difference. And finally, um, Allah has a kind of sacramental function to use Christian language, right? The very form of the name has a very important role in Islamic spirituality, especially in Sufism or what's sometimes called Islamic mysticism. The use and the invocation and the remembrance using that divine name, it has a kind of a holy presence on its own in the Arabic. So those are some of the dimensions of that question, but we still think it's perfectly correct to translate the word Allah as God uh, in English, but you know, if you read through the text, you get an you, you, you do get a sense of these other dimensions of the name. Mm -hmm. and, and just to follow up on that a little bit, you know, in Hebrew, there's a distinction between the the Yad Hey Vav Hey proper name, if you will, that's revealed to Moses, and then the categorical name, for lack of a better term, Elohim. Mm -hmm. In in Arabic, there's not that distinction from what I just gathered. No, it's yeah. The history of the of the name Allah is very different uh, from, let's you know, in Judaism, you know, the the idea mm -hmm. that you couldn't even pronounce the divine name and that right, only the right. priests could do so at certain times. <laughs> and and even I, mean, I just spelled it. I just realized. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And so it's it's a uh, it, it it, but it does go to show that the, the, the that the notion of of the name of God having a sacred quality because of its form is not unique to Islam. Mm -hmm. uh, it's also in Judaism. I mean, you also have a similar idea in other traditions. Very good, very good. Well, anyone picking up this volume for the first time will immediately notice that on any given page, the Quranic translation takes up at most half the page, and the rest of it is going to be filled with explanatory notes. To what extent did you, the editors, offer these generous notes as a gift to the faithful, and to what extent as a gift to non-Muslim readers like me? Uh... It's an interesting way to phrase the question. I, I, it's, it was more that as we read through the commentary literature, we just saw that there was so much richness, so much scholarly activity, so many profound insights, so much light that could be shed on the text that it was in a sense difficult to stop ourselves. Um, we, we didn't really initially conceive of that this many notes. I mean, there's 900,000 words of commentary. And so with the translation altogether, it's a million words of text. 
for the translation and commentary. Very, uh, you know, very far from what we originally had conceived. But once you get into this literature in Arabic, it's called tafsir, uh, the exegesis and commentary on the Quran. Mm-hmm. We, we, we just, in a sense, it wasn't a question of how much could we put in. It was really of limiting ourselves. I mean, it would have been much easier to make it longer rather than to make it the length that it is now, if you, if, you, if you can conceive of the size and the richness of the literature. And, you know, I mean, I don't think it was more than one audience for the other. I mean, it was really trying to follow the logic of the text itself. Mm-hmm. You know, how, how can we show people that Muslims have reflected deeply, have really engaged in a, in a very rigorous intellectual fashion with this text and it's really only a kind of summary and a synthesis of a vast literature. Not to say that it's superficial. I think there's quite a lot in in our book. But if you compare it to the in quantity to the vast literature, it really, you know, you could fill up an entire wall of a mm-hmm. you know of your room with just the most important commentaries on the Quran. And if you're talking about all of the commentaries on the Quran, you could fill a house. Mm-hmm. And so you know, it's it's we just couldn't stop ourselves you know i mean we were limited by the size of the page i mean at at some point it's very funny now it comes to mind um i had to sit down and actually calculate based upon the typeface and how small we could make the text where we had to stop and say we can't write any more uh Mm -hmm. commentary for this given translation it was really um that kind of experience Mm -hmm. well i I think it's glorious i i honestly can't wait till september i teach uh a couple of surahs in a survey of medieval literature class that I teach, mm-hmm. and just having this at my disposal for lesson planning, I mean, is just wonderful. So I do thank you for those notes. Wonderful. Thank you. Well, I'm going to ask you about one of the essays uh, in the end of the volume that you didn't write, uh, mm-hmm. but it was so fascinating that I just had to talk about it in this interview. Uh, Joseph Lombard's essay, The Quran in Translation, spends a great deal of time on a phenomenon that I was aware of in Judaism but not in Islam, and that's the grammatical polyvalence of the char- that characterizes the Arabic text. Talk to our readers a little bit about that, and along the way, this emphasis that he puts on that polyvalence, is that a description of, for lack of a better phrase, normal Islamic piety? Or is that chapter more of an exhortation to Muslims to appreciate something that you could do more of? Or is it something else entirely? That's a very good question. Um, yeah, that's a very good question. Because the Quran has always been recognized by, by Muslims as having a very elusive and, as I said earlier, elliptical quality. Uh for the mainstream of this intellectual tradition always was open to the idea that the Quran could be read in more than one way. And indeed, the commentary literature, one of its main features is that it records differences of opinion or differences of emphasis of different scholars who read various texts in different ways. I'll give you one example because the English translation actually works. Uh, there is a refrain that appears several times throughout the Quran that says, um, God provides unto whomsoever he will without reckoning uh, and in the Arabic the grammar is and, the, and you might say the semantics is just as ambiguous because the question becomes what does without reckoning mean here does it mean that God does not need to keep track of what he's giving because he's infinite does it mean that he cannot be called to account he cannot be reckoned 
for the things that he does. In other words, he's inscrutable. You cannot challenge him on why he gave so much to this person and gave so much mm -hmm. and not so much to the other person. And so just in there, you have two, actually other opinions are also mentioned. You have two ways of reading the literal text, which one Muslim will prefer one, one Muslim will prefer the other, and others will say, no, it's supposed to mean both of them at the same time. Mm -hmm. It's supposed to mean both at the same time. And that happens a lot in Quran, where the fact that something is elusive and is and is open to multiple meanings is not a defect of the text, but is part of the richness of the text that we're, we're that we're able to take these multiple meanings uh, from it. And that's that's just at the literal level. Um, there are then deeper levels of understanding which have uh, been part of the commentary tradition. Of course, you know, in the West you have the tradition of the literal, the moral, the allegorical, uh, and the anagogical. Essentially, mm -hmm. these different forms right. of symbolism. Dante's and you have letter the letter to Con Grande. That's right, exactly. Mm -hmm. And then you have, and you have very much the equivalent, not with the same exact categories, but very similar categories, um, in the Islamic exegetical tradition. So yes, of course, you read a text uh, morally. What is the lesson that it's meant to tell? Uh, does the text serve as an allegory? Uh, for example, many stories in the Quran are of prophets dealing with their opponents, either the people who are rejecting them or tyrannical rulers. Uh, and these are very often read as allegories for the experiences of the Prophet Muhammad and his community. Uh, then there's also the question of reading it, the text as a spiritual allegory, where, again, to use the example of these stories of the prophets, let's say Moses and Pharaoh, where Moses represents the spirit and Pharaoh represents the ego. Uh, mm. uh, and it's, so it's read as a spiritual allegory. That's very, very common in the Islamic exegetical literature to read a single text as having these multiple simultaneous uh, senses, right? Not, and none of them necessarily contradicting the others, but of, of it being able to meet all of those things at the same time. And so part of what uh, Joseph, I think, was doing in the text was to show that, in a sense, the Quran has a certain form, uh, which, is, uh, which is very poetic. Uh, it, and it also has this kind of, uh, for a person who's reading at first, a kind of a disorienting, uh, sense because very often the pronouns will change. You'll go, God will be speaking in the first person, and then in the mid in mid sentence it'll change to God speaking in the third person. Mm -hmm. um, and that itself also has a very profound effect on the way that Muslims do theology. You can see it even in Islamic art in the very forms of Islamic art. Uh, but then beyond that are these multiple levels of meaning. And so I think part of what Muslims should take away from it, and this is getting to the second part of your question. Mm -hmm. um, it's, it's a reminder to Muslims that, and to others that Muslims never took as the default position the idea that the Quran means one thing, one thing only, and that there's a single correct view, which if you deviate from, you are completely in the wrong. This is actually the characteristic drive, you might say. This is the viewpoint of those who we call fundamentalists. Uh, and it's also the view of those who are, I, I would argue, mistakenly called literalists, which I prefer to call exclusivists, meaning those who we say, those who claim to be reading the Quran literally are not really reading the Quran literally. The, the, the concept of literal, we can get into, it really doesn't mean much. Right. Uh, but, they're, <laughs> but, they're de but they're demanding that the Quran means exactly one thing and one thing only, and that it can't mean anything else, which is actually a very minority marginal view in the Islamic tradition. And so when I say literal, for example, these the, these fundamentalists, when they read the verse, God is the light of the heavens and the earth, or 
uh, wheresoever you turn, there is the face of God. They don't read that literally, but they only allow it to mean one precise thing. Mm -hmm. And that's the distinction between uh, what's sometimes called fundamentalism and the mainstream Islamic tradition on, you know, the, the multi, the, the polyvalence, the sometimes the ambiguity of the Quran. It's also worth mentioning, and I hope I'm not going on too long, that the Quran no, itself, <laughs> the Quran itself actually, and I think is unique among sacred texts in doing this, the Quran itself warns the, the reader and the reciter that it is both clear in meaning in some places and ambiguous in others. In the seventh verse of chapter three, uh, the Quran speaks about those verses which are muhkam, meaning clear in meaning or fixed in meaning, and those which are mutashabih, which is translated in very in various ways, sometimes as allegorical or ambiguous or symbolic. Uh, it, you know, it has this sense of those which can mean one thing or it could mean another thing, and it warns the believer that there are those who have the wrong intention, who seek out these ambiguous texts uh, in order to lead into temptation and in, to lead into to in a sense without without getting into the details of the text they're doing it for the wrong reasons they're fixating on the ambi and on the ambiguous verses and misusing them and so mm -hmm. the quran actually warns and says be careful of the way in which you read those verses which are clear in meaning and those which are allegorical or symbolic or ambiguous but what's significant about that is that it's saying look in some cases you're not going to perceive an immediate fixed meaning and that there are depths of meaning here mm -hmm. that i think is very profound and very important and and it's definitely uh would be a good thing if more of my co-religionists would have knowledge of the fact that the quran first of all says this and that the intellectual tradition um, has a tremendous range of subtlety and sophistication when it comes to the various senses of what a text can say mm -hmm. well i think you've already been a benefit to my co-religionists in describing this array of different kinds of reading. I mean, it, it's not by any means an identical counterpart to what happens in Christianity, but certainly there are analogies between reading traditions among the two traditions, so I'm, I'm glad you narrated that for us. Well, I want to turn to from linguistic ambiguity to some of the theological tensions that someone can read in this translation or another translation of the Quran one of them is between the sternness that we see in some passages when it comes to matters of belief and loyalty, and yet sayings, as in Surah 3, which you were just quoting, just a couple verses before that, quote, God desires not to place a burden on you, but he desires to pur purify you, close quote. Now, in terms of Quranic scholarship and in terms of Islamic piety, how do believers navigate that tension between the sternness and the graciousness that we see in the Quranic text? Yeah, that's a very good question. Um, you know, one of the major parameters, you might say, one of the major ways in which Muslims divide the divine names is to talk about those divine names and qualities of beauty and the divine names and qualities of majesty. That is to say, there are ways in which God is spoken of in the Quran which are gentle um, and uh, receptive and loving and those which are more characteristic of severity of wrath, uh, and then a major question of theology becomes, how do you resolve this tension? How do you resolve the tension of God being the perfectly just and of God also being the infinitely merciful? Because after all, justice and mercy are contradictory. They both can't 
apply at the same time. And God is a is one being by definition for Muslims. And so this creates a real tension. And one of the major questions in Islamic theology was, uh, how can we say that God is just? Is he constrained by his justice? Uh, or, uh, and how much room is there for the divine mercy, for the forgiveness of sins and so forth? Uh, how far in the spiritual life, how far should we go in the direction of hope for the mercy of God? And how far should we go in fear from the wrath of God? And you have these very beautiful poetic images in Sufi poetry, for example, of the two wings. You know, if you have the wing of mercy, but not the wing, I'm sorry, if you have the wing of hope, but not the wing of fear, you'll fall. Uh, that you have to be balanced between between hope and fear of God, because this actually, you might say, corresponds to the reality of things. And the Quran, rather than trying to come up with some kind of, uh, you know, average uh, that people can fixate on, usually... Its mode of discourse is to show in one passage that God is, yes, infinitely merciful, that God forgives all sins, as the Quran says on a couple of occasions. Mm -hmm. But then in other pages, you will read that God is swift in retribution, that God will um, punish those who sin, that people will abide in hell. And then the challenge becomes for the believer to take these absolute statements and then to bring them to some kind of resolution within their own heart within their own intelligence. Um, there is an emphasis in Islam, not of this perfect balance, right? I'm, what, I've, what I've set up until this point makes it seem as though it's a kind of a 50-50 proposition. Mm -hmm. There's always in Islamic theology and Islamic spirituality an idea that, yes, we have to be balanced between beauty and majesty, between wrath and mercy, but that mercy overcomes wrath. Mercy, mm -hmm. is, the, mercy is the principle. Love is the principle. It, it's not the wrath of God that encompasses all things in the Quran. It's the mercy of God that encompasses all things in the Quran. Uh, when Muslims pronounce the the formula in, uh, when they begin eating or if they leave the house, basically at the beginning of any significant action, they say, Bismillahirrahmanirrahim, in the name of God, the compassionate, the merciful, which are both names of mercy. The compassionate and the merciful both come from rahma, which means love, compassion, kindness, caring. Mm -hmm. And so there is an idea uh, and an emphasis, uh, especially within uh, Sufism, that the very substance of things, the very substance of the world, uh, the very principle by which things are created is the principle of rahma, of mercy, and that and that wrath is not equal in in that sense. But from our point of view, if we focus too much on the hope in God's mercy we forget that we also have responsibilities and that we have to avoid sin. But then if we focus too much on God's wrath, we despair. And the Quran warns against that. The Quran says, despair not of the mercy of God. Mm -hmm. uh, and so there's no way you might say conceptually of resolving these things in the sense that if there's no way to conceptually resolve the balance between freedom. Uh, I should say, I'm sorry, the, the balance between justice and mercy. But we, in our experience, in our, in our relationship, relationship with God in our, you might say, lived reality in our heart, we understand what that balance is, how that tension can be resolved, how God can be both of these at the same time, mm -hmm. and what that means. That, that, that's great, and, I, and you know, if some of our listeners have taken some biblical Hebrew, hopefully you hear that sort of common Semitic heritage with Ruhamah, the, mm -hmm. the mercy word from the Hebrew Bible that plays such a prominent role in Hosea, uh, mm -hmm. so, you know... Uh, and again, I you know I I don't want to make the claim that these are identical texts by any means, but by by 
all means, I want to say that there are anal analogies here that are useful to think about together. So I agree. Now, one thing that I had never heard about uh, until I started studying this volume uh, is the tradition of, and if, if I use a term that's clunky here, please feel free to correct me, but recitation contests in which mm -hmm. men and women display the skills of proper pacing, intonation, and other features of artistic Quranic reading. How prevalent are these contests in the 21st century, and how important are... How important is this tra tradition in the contemporary faith? Well, you know, it's it's interesting. Probably your listeners, if it, a few years ago there was a there was a, a documentary on HBO called Quran by Heart, which followed three children who mm -hmm. were participating in one of these contests, and I actually show that to my classes. People usually enjoy it. You know, in some places it's quite significant. You know, in Indonesia, these contests fill stadiums. Uh, people come and, and they listen, and in Egypt, it's it's also uh, a quite important, uh, not important, but it's a significant uh, kind of event. I would say that it, it's not probably useful to focus on these contests as being significant, but the underlying practice of mm -hmm. trying to recite the Quran correctly and trying to recite the Quran beautifully are very, very important. I mean, some have said that the recitation of the Quran according to uh, the, the principles of what's called tajweed or the, you know, the, to make it beautiful and correct is the supreme art in Islam because it, it is the, it's the very, it's, you know, for, for us, the Quran is the word of God and to, and to recite the Quran to use Christian language is almost a kind of a Eucharistic, uh, function. You're, you're bringing the word of God into the world. You're making the word of God heard. And any art that corresponds to that, the written art of calligraphy and the and the sonoral art of recitation, have a very profound sacred significance. It's really a sacred art. And historically what happened is that, of course, the Arabs themselves of the peninsula didn't need to have this science because it was their language and they pronounced it correctly. But very quickly you had Persians and North Africans and Berbers and, uh, uh, and other groups coming in who needed, you might say, help reciting the Quran properly, and they developed a science for right down to where you place your tongue on your teeth for various letters mm -hmm. of how to pronounce and, and the rhythm and the pacing by which you're supposed to recite the Quran. And so what we have is the, a very stable tradition of the pronunciation of the text reaching back 1,400 years. And so the way that Muslims recite the Quran now, the pronunciation is the same as it was 1,400 years ago. And many Muslims take this extremely seriously. Most of the Muslims that you, uh, I should say many Muslims who, who take, take a serious study of the Quran will include the, um, the, the, this, these rules by which the pronunciation of the letters uh, and the proper uh, recitation are there. And... Uh, well, I, again, I've probably gone on long enough about that, but it's, I mean, it is very important, especially since the memorization of the Quran is such an important part. I mean, there are probably hundreds of thousands of people in the world who have the entire Quran memorized. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's a very common practice. Well, I, I do want to focus a little bit on the gender question, because one of the common stereotypes about Islam is that it is a patriarchal and even misogynistic constellation of traditions, and yet in these very public, very... Quranic events, women play a prominent role. I mean, 
talk a little bit about that because I mean that's something that I think our listeners could stand to hear. Well, you know, it goes much farther than um, uh, than women being in Quran contests. Contests. Mm-hmm. If you look at um, the tradition uh, before colonialism, um, you know, in in some parts of the Islamic world in the 15th, 16th century, uh, women accounted for 50 percent of the administration of what we would call essentially uh, civil society organizations, these, Mm -hmm. these endowments. Uh, so, I mean, if you think of, let's say, uh, you know, that, that list of sponsors at the end of a PBS show, that kind of thing where, (laughs) you know, and so women before colonial, before the colonial period in many of these places were part of society. They were running things. They were running businesses. They were judges. They were scholars. Uh, and it's very paradoxical for people. Uh, but I'll make a statement which might shock uh, some people, which is that the patriarchy that you find in many Muslim societies today is in some cases equally or more so a reflection not of their own traditional past, but of the of the inheritance of colonialism in their societies. Because the colonial powers who came in and ruled over them were entirely patriarchal, were, mm-hmm. were entirely male-dominated. And if you compare the way that women were treated in Europe during the colonial period to the way that women were treated in the Islamic uh, world pre-colonial period, I'm, I have to say there's no contest. Women were much better off in the Islamic world. It was only in the 20th century that in terms of their legal and social rights that women came to uh, surpass, you might say, in some in some measures, women in the Islamic world. And so I think the challenge for Muslims is not to say that there aren't problems in some cases. There are. There obviously are. Uh, you, you do have, you know, in extreme cases, people always bring up Saudi Arabia, which I think is just off the map. I mean, it's not really representative of anything. But you do have problems in other places. We have to address these problems. But we also have to do it in a way that acknowledges that our own tradition was not nearly as, quote-unquote, patriarchal or at all misogynistic as uh, it has come to be viewed. Uh, and mm-hmm. I think even that just that one statistic that 50, in, in, in many places, 50% of the civil society, uh, these civil society organizations were run by women is enough to show people that the problems in, in Islamic society are not necessarily intrinsic, but there's a certain contingent quality to them. Mm-hmm. Very good. Thank you. Mm-hmm. Um, one thing about this volume, as soon as I opened it, uh, I mean, it is just a feast for the eye. I mean, it's beautifully arranged. The color is wonderful. There's other elements of visual design that make this just a great book, I mean, just on first glance. Uh, I'll go ahead and say to our listeners that if you're going to purchase this volume, the bound volume is the way to go just for that reason. Talk to our listeners a little bit about the artistic traditions and your own editorial processes that influence the look of the page. Yeah, um, this is something that I personally spent a lot of time on in terms of the design of the page and also the design of the cover um, and the layout. The Islam, uh, Islamic art of the book, the Islamic art of the book is one of the most advanced arts um, in human history. And that has a lot to do with the ornamentation of the Quran. Uh, and this has two main aspects, you might say. One is, of course, the tradition of calligraphy, uh, which which is the art of you know, beautiful writing. Uh, and you had the development of an extremely sophisticated and still living tradition um, of the writing of the 
of Arabic and especially the writing of the Quran. For example, if you go to Turkey or to Iran, you can still study under traditional masters. Uh, and they create these beautiful pieces of, of, of Arabic calligraphy. In addition to that, there's also the um, illumination of the text. You have this tradition also in, in, in the West. Uh, you know, people can go online and look at things like the Book of Kells, uh, where you have the tradition of the ornamentation and the gilding uh, of, of various pages, and also, of course, then the, the, the tradition um, of bookbinding. Um, and so what we wanted to do was to, in some sense, to provide a kind of a, a pale echo, you might say, of the beauty of these uh, Quran manuscripts. And when you look at some of these, especially these kind of imperial Quran manuscripts, these these pages are so stupefyingly beautiful, you can't even believe that they exist. I mean, the level of intricacy, the level of intelligence in the beauty of the forms is really just mind-boggling. Um, and, you know, uh, the gold coming off of the page and the way that the, the calligraphy relates to the to the color and the patterns is really just something that's amazing. And so what we wanted to do was to convey something of that beauty by trying to cast you might say, this English translation using the full possibilities of Western typography, mm -hmm. uh, using the technology at our disposal. I mean, if you look at the history of Western typography, it's really quite amazing. It's really quite beautiful. Uh, going back to the you know 16th, 15th, 14th century, uh, that, and we carefully chose the typeface to reflect something of the character of the sacred text, and then also design these verse medallions which separate the separate the the various verses from one another which reflects the way that it's presented in the original arabic that is to say placing a kind of a medallion with a number in it in between you might say each verse and then for the cover um there's a um, i mean people can take a look at this online mm -hmm. there's a kind of a geometric pattern that forms the center field of the cover which is not in the islamic tradition a mere form of decoration I think this is something that's extremely significant for Muslims and non-Muslims to, to grasp, that Islamic geometry, this very particular art of geometric form, of geometric pattern, uh, and of, of the arabesque, which is also very often appears with it, is a kind of meditation on the very form and content of the Quran itself. It's almost a kind of an abstract uh, portrait of the Quran in terms of its structure, the way that it flows, the way that ideas are repeated, uh, and uh, you know the, that where you can find beginnings and endings in various places. There's a very particular character to the art that you find attached to the Quran that you don't find in other places. And I think there's a kind of an aesthetic impact that is also part of the experience of the Quran. And I wanted to be able to have just a, a kind of a an echo of that, a, 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 just a small echo of that experience when people actually pick up the book and look at it and and you know I'm gratified that it came out the way that it did uh, and it's a kind of it might lead some people to then investigate and look at some of the broader art of the book in Islam and look at some of these traditional Qurans which put you know the, the work our book absolutely to shame um, well, very good. As we sort of head towards the end here, I want to give you a chance to comment on a couple words that get thrown around in public discourse, but my hunch is they get understood, or misunderstood, pardon me, uh, largely because of what I've read in this volume. One of them is the word Sharia. From what I gathered from the general 
introduction, I mean, this is something roughly analogous to the Greek namos or the Latin lex or the English law. Talk a little bit about the place of Sharia as a concept within Islam, and I'm, I'm sure you won't be able to avoid talking about how it gets misunderstood when news reporters get a hold of it. Um, yeah, the way you framed it is actually, I think, good uh, in the sense that if you use the English word law in the broadest sense possible, meaning what do you study at law school? The law. Uh, mm-hmm. If you understand it in that sense, then it's a, it's, it is a rough correspondence and a rough translation of it. But usually when people say it's Islamic law, they conceive of it as being a list of rules and regulations that have to be followed. What I usually tell my classes is that when you talk about the word Sharia, uh, one way of thinking about it is to is to think of the the concept of Western legal tradition, mm-hmm. uh, and the reason why that's helpful is because when you think of the Western legal tradition, it does have a coherent identity. It does have certain principles. It has a history. It has a coherence, uh, but it's not the same thing everywhere. So the way it manifests in, let's say, the UK or in France or in Germany, or United States, it varies, and yet. You can see it as being part of a single tradition. Islamic law is something like that. Uh, mm-hmm. When you talk about the Sharia, it's one way of conceiving of it is as the Islamic legal tradition, which includes not only what you might call positive law, the, the idea of what are the actual rules by which you have to live your life, but it also includes jurisprudence, meaning how are these rules derived? How can you engage with the sources of the law, the Quran, the example of the Prophet, uh, legal precedent of, of previous generations. And then beyond that, the, the further dimension of the moral underpinnings of the law. Why do we have the laws that we do? What is the philosophical significance of the law? What are the What is the kind of society that this law is trying to uphold and to protect? It then also includes um, judicial procedure. It includes um, uh, settling questions of whether a particular legal question will be the domain of the sovereign or will be the domain of a judge. Uh, it has to do with um, different forms of legislation, legal maxims. So there's this entire bustling um, dynamic uh, activity which stretches across centuries and also stretches across lands. And if you take all of that together, in a sense, you're going to put the name Sharia on that. It, of course, mm-hmm. crystallizes in different forms in different places. So um, you have, let's say, the Hanafi school of law, uh, which is dominant in Turkey and in South Asia. You also then have the Maliki school of law, which is, let's say, dominant more in North Africa. When a Hanafi stands to pray the five daily prayers, he clasps his hands in front of his chest, in, in front of his uh, navel, whereas a Maliki would put his hands down at his sides. Why? Well, it, it's, it's as a result of the, these two different legal schools adopting, you might say, a kind of an algorithm of interpretation where they look at the sources and then they come to conclusions based upon those same sources. But there are variations within, the source, within those sources. It's kind of like free speech in Europe versus free speech in the United States. Mm-hmm. Everybody agrees in free speech. But in Europe, if you, if you deny the existence of a certain genocide, you can go to prison, whereas in the United States, you can't. And yet both accept the principle of free speech to some degree. It's, it, there's something like that in the Islamic tradition where the very same sources and very similar, you might say, methodologies for deriving law from those sources can give rise to different results. And, and, and it can, in a sense, congeal and crystallize in different lands 
in different ways. But it's not an arbitrary tradition. The Sharia, this I think a lot of Muslims even don't understand, is a rational tradition. It's an intellectual scholarly tradition. The mm-hmm. sources of authority, that is to say the Quran and the Sunnah of the Prophet, these of course are come from God. It's a sacred origin. But if you're going to create a society, if you're going to rule a society in the name of the law, the justifications that you offer on the basis of the Quran, on the basis of the example of the Prophet Muhammad, have to be public, rational arguments. You have to present proof. You have to be able to present an argument that says, based upon these sources and based upon the the modes of authority, we accept this is what the law should be. And in that sense, um, it's very similar to other systems of law. That's wonderful. That really is. I want to turn here uh, to your essay at the end of this volume, uh, Conquest and Conversion, War and Peace in the Quran, and to the concept of jihad, because this is, even more than Sharia, a word that has taken on a very narrow range of meanings when people use them on news broadcasts. But as you explore in that essay, uh, again, you know, this is roughly analogous to the Greek agon or the English struggle. Take a few moments to talk about how that notion of struggle or agon or jihad plays out in different ethical contexts. You know, and it, it, it has to be deconstructed to a certain degree. The word jihad um, does mean different things in different contexts. In the Quran, its first meaning was a spiritual meaning. It had this mm-hmm. idea of a kind of a moral spiritual struggle uh, and the instrument of that struggle was the Quran itself meaning there was a kind of moral emotional struggle of people against their own souls and then of course so contending with their enemies and that the truths of the Quran were to be the means by which they could engage in that struggle uh, later you had a, a kind of a technical sense of the word jihad where in the Islamic legal tradition it essentially became the name for uh, what we would, in a sense, for fighting in the in the in the in the way of God, meaning using using military force in the in defense of the Darul Islam, meaning in defense of the realms of Islam, and this came to be called jihad in just a general sense, as a kind of a technical term in Islamic law. But if you if you look at the Quran, the original use of the word jihad in the Quran actually had much more of that spiritual sense, and so the deconstruction that has to take place is, of course, number one. What do Muslims mean by struggle? And then number two, what is the law of war? Or what is the legitimate use of force in the Quran? So it's not really a question of what does jihad mean? I think most people are really concerned with what do Muslims think is the legitimate use of force? Can people be forced to convert? Uh, are Muslims allowed to attack? Are they encouraged to attack other people? Is Islam an aggressive religion? And so forth. And here, when it comes to the the, the, the more martial and political aspects of things. I think it's probably most helpful to point out that what you had in Islam, I think even before you had it really developed in the West and in Christianity, was what we would call a just war theory, meaning a very developed discourse on what is the, are the justifications for going to war, number one, and number two, what is the proper conduct in war? Uh, so what justifies you to attack another group or to engage in fighting, and then how should you fight and what are the limits uh, of violence in the context of a war? And I think if anyone was to really make a close study of this tradition, they would see that it corresponds pretty closely 
to just war theory in the West and even really predates many of the kind of developments and achievements of 20th century international law. You know, we have to remember, and I point this out in the essay, that the idea of banning war as a means of politics is really a kind of a 20th century idea. You know, the Kellogg-Briand Pact and the Geneva Conventions, the UN Charter. Essentially, what they do is to place the entire world in a kind of situation where every country is in a treaty with every other country. Uh, and that was also reflective of Islamic law in the past, meaning that if you were in a treaty with another country, then of course you couldn't be in a state of war with them. But the default setting throughout throughout human history, not just in Islam, the default setting was that if you bordered with another country and you didn't have a treaty with them, you could expect to be attacked by them militarily at any time. And in a sense, your borders was that which you could defend. Any you know the territory you could defend in the absence of a treaty was your border. And in a, and so international humanitarian law, the international law of war, is very consonant with traditional Islamic conceptions of when you're supposed to use force and how you're supposed to use force. Then the problem becomes, well, what about these groups who seem to flout and completely disregard these laws? That's a separate problem. That's a very real problem. But I would I would point out that it's a it's a, again a question of historical contingency. If you go back, uh, let's say, 150 years, if you were to ask the typical European to describe a Muslim resistance fighter, what they would describe is a kind of chivalrous Sufi warrior uh, who would be the object, actually, of a kind of an admiration. Whereas today, if you ask people to describe the typical Muslim resistance fighter, they would describe a kind of an extremist fundamentalist. We have to ask ourselves, why is this the case? Why was the Algerian resistance fighter who led the resistance against the French, Amir Abdul Qadir al-Jazairi, why was he given a gift of special pistols by Abraham Lincoln for saving Christians in Damascus from a riot? Why was he an object of admiration in European capitals and in America? Whereas, you know, the, the figures of today, like bin Laden and al-Baghdadi and others, uh, are completely revolting. I think it has a lot to do with historical, political contingent factors and not so much with the intrinsic laws of war and Islam. Because when Amir Abdul Qadir and Imam Shamil, when they were the objects of admiration for being the chivalric, noble resistance fighters to oppression, they were following Islamic law. They were following the tradition which told you how you're supposed to fight, who you're supposed to fight, when you're supposed to fight, and when you're supposed to stop fighting. Whereas the modern, these modern fundamentalists have probably never cracked a book when it comes to the actual Islamic conduct of, of the use of force and never mind Islamic spirituality. And they've adopted essentially um, a doctrine of limitless violence, which is, it has to be said, has a lot more in common with, let's say, the Bolsheviks, the Nazis, uh, you know, the Khmer Rouge, than it does with any form of, uh, of jihad in the classical Islamic tradition. Mm-hmm. Well, I've been at the wheel for most of this conversation, so in the spirit of hospitality, I want you to have the last word. What about the Quran, the process of editing the Quran, or whatever else do you want our listeners thinking about as we finish up today? Well, the one thing that was always in my mind was that I, I would love for Muslims and for the general readers and for scholars, when they pick up the book, to get a sense of the richness and the profundity of the Islamic intellectual tradition around the Quran. 
this was something that I was constantly struck by. I know my fellow editors, we were all struck by. Um, and we, we mourn the loss um, and the diminution of this tradition in the modern age where we've lost so many of our institutions of learning, many of our institutions of spirituality, and these generations upon generations of great men and women reflecting upon and putting into practice the teachings of the Qur'an you know, so much of this has been destroyed or dismantled or lost. And, you know, my hope is that by, you know, taking a look through the pages of this book, people will at least be able to get a sense that, you know, some of these uglier voices, some of these more extreme voices, uh, what they see on the news, uh, what they read in some of the newspapers, doesn't really represent the Islamic tradition as a whole, but that is really just a kind of, a moment in history uh, and that there is a lot more to it than what we encounter in the discourse around us. Dr. Dali, thank you for coming on Christian Humanist Profiles. Uh, it was great to be with you. Listeners, thank you for downloading and for listening with us. Uh, please feel free to come on to ChristianHumanist.org to make comments. Christian Humanist Profiles is a member of the Christian Humanist Radio Network. Our press liaison is Kristen Philippic. Our audio editor is Britt Stack, and I am Nathan Gilmore saying, Go in grace, go in peace, serve the Lord.